Action Park Media. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. Today I'm joined by Ryan Leaf. Ryan is a former NFL quarterback and works significantly within the world of sports as a college football analyst. He can be found on ESPN or his Pac-12 radio show. He is currently an advocate for those struggling with mental and behavioral health issues. You can follow Ryan on Instagram at Ryan Leaf. Ryan Leaf, welcome to the American Glutton Podcast. Does that mean we get to eat a bunch of crazy we food? Eat, yes. I don't know why Narod hasn't brought in the donuts yet. Yes. This is a real big failing on your part. I was waiting for your kiwi. I want okay. sprinkles. First and foremost, like before we jump into like all the physical stuff you've done, but this is also physical or partially physical. What is being picked number two in the draft like? Like, no, I, I mean, I'm sorry. That's like the craziest thing. That's huge. Well, you you don't fully understand it when it's happening. You just believe this is this, this is supposed to be happening. I'm, right. You know, I'm supposed to be the first or the second pick. Peyton Manning and I are the best quarterbacks you'll ever see, meet, anything. That's just the way it is. So it, it seems pretty natural because that was your goal and this is where you got to. And But people start treating you differently. You know, this pedestal you're on allows you to behave a certain diff- allows you to behave differently and not have the same kind of consequences. So it it can be inherently bad uh, if you allow it to become that. But later in life, what it's become for me is that there was just a ton of expectation that I didn't meet because you're the second pick in the draft. You're just assumed to be great, and when you're not, you kind of internalize that. And if you're not really um, in a mentally healthy place, it can affect you negatively. And you have to figure out a way to look back on it and see it as like, wow, what what an absolute gift and success to get to a place like that. And it's all about the way you think about it um, and not what others choose to judge or, or project on you. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, that's a very stoic attitude, which I try to live by, which is like, the things that happened only matter from the point which which we view them. Right. Like however we're choosing to see this occurrence, that's how it will exist in our life. And what does the difference of somebody else seeing it differently make? Makes no difference to me. Well, when you care so much about what other people think for the longest time, it, it means the world, right? You're like, you know, I, I grade my success in life on what he, she, or them – think of me when, you know, in in reality, you know, you you can't control any of that. It doesn't matter. Um, And that took such a long time for me to figure out. It's weird how I think people who who go through and deal with adversity much younger in life or earlier in life tend to learn that lesson a lot earlier. Um, And it just took me it just took me a heck of a long time before I could fully understand and and learn that lesson. 
This is an aside, but I have to ask because this is one of the things that I love the most about the draft or or that in between is the combine. Right. But I don't I don't really pay attention to quarterbacks in the combine. Do you did you have to do that? We did, but it wasn't like like I was going to be the first or second pick in the draft. I, you so know, it does whatever you do there doesn't really matter. It depends. You know, some guys can really up their stock. You know, with how fast they are. For me, it was uh, for me it couldn't have gone worse. I showed up overweight. <laughs> I missed a meeting with the Colts who had the first pick because I was getting an X ray on my thumb. You know, I just it, I didn't do a good job at all. Yet it didn't affect my draft status it should have people should have seen those as a bunch of red flags and went oh my god but the talent like when i would go out and throw the football they were just like that's all we need we don't we don't i don't care what uh i don't care they got kicked out of two bars in college you know or or they didn't show up for a meeting at the combine this look at him throw the ball right yeah yeah that pressure that stress I've not experienced it in the terms that you have experienced it because the quarterback, that's the guy. Second round in the draft. Number two, it's, it's not second round. Sorry. Second pick. I didn't mean to fuck you up and demean you. You didn't. Second pick. That's a big fucking deal. The spotlight that's on you for that. In my own tiny universe, I was like number two build on a television show that was relatively successful for a couple of years. And I, and I'd or I was already sober, married, had been dieting, like had my life pretty much straightened out compared to what it was prior to getting my shit together and still saw bad behavior enter in when I had a moment of anybody going like, Look at that guy. That's right. Yeah. That was so unhealthy for me. And I think, I mean, I hope I learned from it because I definitely got my shit together a little bit before it ended and realized like part of, part of this experience of me coming to work is the experience I'm giving somebody else. Part of it is my ability to do my job. But part of it is also just like, what does it mean to go to work? Yeah. You know, who else is dependent on me and showing up on time and being ready to do my job is a part of going to work. If I'm not doing that, I'm failing at my job a little bit, even though it's like if you stand here when we say rolling and say your line, maybe that's all we care about. And for a lot of people, that works and they get to behave badly, you know. Your ability to become empathetic for others, I think that's – that's huge. And I never developed that. I didn't realize, like, I wondered, I think back to, like, why didn't I get along with my teammates as well as I did in high or in college? Well, because this was a job for them. They had kids at home. I was a 22-year-old, you know, punk kid. They were 30, 32-year-old husbands and fathers that needed, they needed to put food on the table for these. So it was a job. And I was just, like, disrespecting them by, like, being late or not not doing all the things I need to do. So there was absolutely zero empathy on my part for anybody else going through the same thing that I was going through. And I mean, you, you just, you wish you could have a better understanding of what that looks like, but I'm also in the position right now. And to your point about getting your shit together, you know, when you, once you finally do that, a big reason why you're able to finally do that is because of the shit you went through. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a, it's a slippery slope for me. I'm like, would you go back and do something different? And I'm like, I would, I would treat people better. I definitely would have treated people better 
through the whole process. But I also am like, I also needed to be hit over the head as many times as I needed to, to get where I'm at right now. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing that comes to mind all the time for me is imagine if I knew when I was 15 or 10 or five years old, some portion of what I know today and the way I live my life and conduct myself, how different it would be. But then you never arrive where you are. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if you truly. I don't know if you arrive, and I don't know if you appreciate it as much. Yeah, I think the gratitude that I have about everything now. I think that's a huge change for me. Like I'm just, I'm grateful for my bed at night. I, I you know, I slept on a like a cement slab for three years while in prison. My bed, I'm really, really grateful for that. Yeah. And those are just some things that I think people don't realize or take for granted because they've, they've slept in a, sl- a soft bed or warm bed, you know, their whole life. And I just, you know, that helped me a ton to re- realize what is truly important and, and how grateful I am for everything I got. Okay, so let's go through this then. Your number two pick, you're the guy. You're then at the Chargers first? Yeah, I got drafted by the San Diego Chargers. San Diego Chargers. What happened? Uh, you know, did well right off the gate. You know, I was one of my first two starts. No one had done that since like 1983 and John Elway. And what ultimately, and it's what I've heard on your podcast a lot, is how you deal with failure. Like when you when when you mess up. Do you view it as an opportunity to do it better the next time? Or do you see it in the black, as a black and white issue? Like, I failed. I'm a failure. And we played Kansas City, and I had the worst football game of my life. I mean, just, I was humiliated. I was embarrassed. And instead of, like, saying those things, like, hey, that's never going to happen again. I'm going to work my tail off. I'm sorry. I, I pointed fingers. I blamed others. I screamed at reporters, you know? And then... Then it's this pride thing where you're like, I can't back down now. I'm in defensive mode. I'm backed into the corner. I'm just going to, you know, fucking throw haymakers all day long to get out of this because it always had worked for me because I was so talented. But at that level, everybody's talented. It's what you have between the years and what you do from Sunday to Sunday, not what you do on Sundays necessarily. And so I just imploded. Uh, I didn't take uh, advice uh, or counsel or. Uh, and I just assumed that, you know, the success of being this would be enough. The money, the power, the prestige, that was enough. Though I wanted to play good football, I just assumed I would ultimately do it. But if you're not putting in the work, if you don't have the people backing you and the support, and you're always fighting, especially the media all day week, your central nervous system is just like on tilt. And it just, it did. And when I finally figured it out, when I got to Tampa, and with Tony Dungy and with Dallas and, and Seattle ultimately at the end with, with Mike Holmgren, I knew how to be a professional except I had been injured now and my talent wasn't there anymore. So it, at that level, clearly you could, be a, you could be a son of a bitch at that level and if you're talented, but if you can't be both, right? You can't be a son of a bitch and uh, an untalented football player and you can't be a good guy and an untalented football player. You don't last. You got to be, you know, the first and foremost is you got to be talented. And I didn't no longer have that talent or the ability to do what I used to be able to do when I finally figured it out. And so I just, and at that point I was dealing with mental health issues, right? I was scared. I was fearful. I was angry and, uh, and I, and I couldn't get out of bed. Uh, I felt lazy cause I was about, you know, 
25 pounds over my playing weight and they were going to fine me every day for being overweight. So that was more embarrassing for me uh, than actually showing up and like working. I, but I couldn't get out of bed. You know, I was depressed. Um, I, I don't want to sidetrack any of this. This is fucking fascinating. But I got to ask, I didn't know that there were is that in your contract? Yeah. Like you say a con- sign a contract that says I won't exceed this weight? Yeah, you kind of have a, a catch weight that you guys feel you work with the strength and conditioning coach on what your most optimal weight uh, would be to play at. And then that's the that's the weight you got to show up at camp at. And every day you're you're over that, you're like you get fined. I think it was I think my case was like it was 10,000 bucks a pound. Whoa. So it was significant and I was 25 pounds, so it was going to cost me 250 grand. So I don't know. I can't remember if it was that for the entire time or something like that, but it was significant. And I was so embarrassed. Like that was more embarrassing to me than like playing poorly. It was like showing up and then it's like, he can't, he can't make his weight. Right. You know, the fat guy, you know, is, uh, he's supposed to be the, the best fit. He's supposed to be the leader. And I just was none of that. But I also was having, I just couldn't get out of bed. I was, I was depressed. The idea of failing and because, I think it can it can definitely go both ways. It can be a catalyst to improve, but it can also be the reason to continue failing, you know, and it can and the fear of failing can be so immense. To me, there were so many times where I had been unsuccessful with something that then the idea of doing something else was just like so I can fail again? Why would I why would I it's put effort into that? Yeah. It's overwhelming. And then Another thing for me, especially like on the recovery side of it, I'm like, you know, you relapse or you do something that's not what's what you're trying to do in your diet. And you're like, well, I'm, you know, I I, I screwed up now. So what's, I mean, I don't need, you know, I'm not going to, I'm just going to make myself feel better. Yeah. You know, because I don't want to feel the way I'm feeling right now, which is, you know, it's a part of life. You just, we're going to have feelings all the time. It's it's a matter of how you can sit with them and deal with them in a healthy way. And I just was so – I was so poor at that. I didn't want to feel anything, right? I'd been searching for that for a while, kind of just the person I was and, and how I thought people looked at me and no one understood who I really was and everything like that. So I just – I was looking for the, the the ultimate escape and that was just not to feel anything. Yeah. And then I, I, I want to get into this because I know it it is a big part of what you went through. But just to say I have empathy also with what you're talking about feeling, I had my gallbladder removed in 1996 and I had never had any kind of heavy-duty painkiller prior to that and I was prescribed Vicodin when I came out of the hospital. To say that I, that I took it for pain is, is incorrect. When I took Vicodin, it's what I imagined somebody with a severe – mental illness who takes a pill and the mental illness goes away. I felt like a like who I who I imagined I was physically, mentally, that's how I felt when I took opiates. Cuz you don't feel anything. It's there it's called a painkiller for a reason, right? It kills the pain. Now I didn't necessarily feel better, but I knew what it did and it made me not feel the failure, the anxiety, the depression. I could be – my inhibitions were less, right? I could talk to people more freely, uh, especially with girls. For me, I just – you know, I couldn't I – was, I was scared to death of girls just because of, you know, <laughs> trauma growing up. 
So it would allow that alcohol and and those drugs would allow me to be like, you know, kind of be the big man on campus that I had the persona that I had developed, right? I was this millionaire playboy type. So why not? Why wouldn't I act as such? And uh, it's gotten to a ton of us in trouble for because we're not those people. But it it felt freeing to me, you know, and that's, you know, you chase that. Yeah. And, and from I can't imagine going to play a football game. I can't imagine the physical exertion just involved in playing a football game at that level. But certainly don't imagine people are doing that drunk. No. But probably lots are doing it while taking painkillers. Well, it's a different kind of painkiller. It's a it's a it's a real strong anti-inflammatory called Toradol. Okay. And it's an injection injection we would get before the games and it would really loosen you up. I mean, you would feel your joints and everything would feel great. And then you really you wouldn't feel any of the real pain that comes in the game until about 4 or 5 hours after the game and then it was set in and that's when they would hand over the opiates to get you through the next few days. And then you'd slowly wean off and get ready for the game again that week. So, I mean, it was a cycle, you right. know. They handed them out like, you know, like they were candy. So I knew it worked. Yeah. I, I wasn't abusing them. It was getting me through my, my work. But when I no longer had competition, which I really feel like was my first drug of choice, when I didn't have that anymore and I needed to feel nothing, it was an you know, I, I've, ne- I've never tried cocaine. I've never tried – I've never tried any, like, drug. I thought a doctor was prescribing it, so it's – you know, I'm, I'm doing the wrong thing the right way, I guess, is the way I looked at it. Yeah. And I looked at somebody who may be on the corner shooting up heroin as, a, as morally corrupt, and I'm, <laughs> right. I'm okay, yeah. you know? And, uh, and that's the way I went about it. And I looked upon others as, as less than, and like I had done my, most of my uh, adult life, and I just – um, I figured this was going to be my life now. Yeah. So that that and that followed you through football. Well, the the behavior did. I didn't. I like to. I like to blame my drug addiction on the fact that I wasn't a great football player. Right. But I can't. I didn't start abusing until I was after I'd quit. And I was in Vegas one night. We were there for a Mike Tyson fight, and uh, an acquaintance of mine. Uh, I ran into offered me and my buddies a couple Vicodin, and I was and I mixed it with the alcohol I was drinking that night. And I don't, I don't know if I, I'd never taken it in an abusive fashion. I'd never taken it. I was in emotional pain. I'd always taken it for physical pain. And then I went into parties that night where there were Super Bowl champs and Hall of Famers, and where I always felt less than or judged. And I didn't feel any of that. Yeah, I felt like I belonged. And then I was like, okay, this is this is the answer. Yeah. I always felt like they gave me a personality. Yeah. Well, it, it, for me, it was always about women in that personality, right? I was objectified women like crazy, and that allowed me to, to you know, just talk to whoever. The most beautiful woman in the room, it didn't matter. I was like, you know, I'm this gawky, you know, you know, big tooth Montana boy, you know. I can't walk up to this beautiful woman and actually start talking to her, but wow, I'm high and drunk that – that's pretty easy, you know. And if she shoots me down, I don't feel the 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 the, the rejection at all either, because I'm like, you know, I'm moving on. Yeah. But if I like, if I was in a sober situation, or if I would talk to somebody like that, and they would, uh, they would reject me in any way, man. I, I mean, I would. It would be such a personal attack that I would absolutely just, you know, fall apart. So. And so the and then that that just got out of hand. Well, yeah. Well, 
first, you're making $5 million a year and you quit that job, but still live a lifestyle like you're making $5 million a year, that goes away in a hurry. Yeah. One ex-wife takes half of it. Uh, you continue to live that because you need people to believe that everything's okay with you. And ultimately, you know, doctors figure it out. And then um, I'm back in my hometown where I'm supposed to be the hero. But instead, I'm kind of vilified and seen as a, you know, how I look at it as a loser. And and I'm living in a little apartment every morning thinking, do I have pills? And if I didn't, how do I get them? And that led to criminal behavior where I started going into people's homes to... um, steal them, essentially. And as soon as I had them in my hand, everything was okay because I knew I wasn't going to feel all that guilt and shame about what I had to do. And that took me to a place, A, I'm not a very good criminal. <laughs> I'm a giant man, so I can't walk in and out of people's homes. We're like, did you see that six, seven, 280-pound guy that just, uh, do you know him? <laughs> no, we don't know him. Pretty easy to pick out of a lineup. I got to ask you about this. Going into people's homes, would you like follow them home from the pharmacy, just randomly walking into houses? I would just drive around the outskirts of my hometown in Montana. It's kind of a ranch farm community, and no one ever locked their doors. I'd walk up and knock on the door. No one answered. I'd feel the handle. If it was unlocked, I'd let myself in and say, hey, hello, I'm looking for so-and-so. No one would answer. I would, And then I would go through the two best places there was, uh, cabinets next to the kitchen, in the kitchen next to the sink, and, and bathroom uh, cabinets. Yeah. Um, and, hey, man, nine times out of ten, people go and get their wisdom teeth pulled or have some kind of surgery. The difference is they come home and they take two out of the 30. So they have 28 pills sitting there. And I think to myself, like, what's wrong with these people? <laughs> yeah. These are six months old and they've only taken two of them. What is wrong with these people? This is, this is what – this is the reaction that occurs to me every time my wife doesn't finish her glass of wine. Yeah. I just go like you're – What's wrong with yeah. you? Yeah. You don't understand. You could get blackout drunk right now and it wouldn't ruin your life because I'll drive you home. Right. And like you're just going to leave half a glass. Like what's wrong with you? Yeah. I agree. People that – and I don't want to encourage people to go home and start taking their pills. But I I felt the very same way. I've definitely rifled through medicine cabinets – I've never broken into a house though to do it. It's always been somebody I I knew. I like to keep it – like I never actually broke. I like to like I, I almost minimize it. Like I didn't actually like break in. I like the door was unlocked, so I let myself in. You know, I'm a community member. I was just looking out for everybody. You know, really it accidentally entered. What? Yeah. yeah. What's the nomenclature that we? I use? don't know. Just like uh, went in uh, uninvited. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I like that too. Yeah. But I'm a bad criminal. I got found out pretty quick. The sheriff's department came and saved my life. Yeah. That's what happened. And did they catch you going in? No. No. They just uh, – a family realized something was gone. They brought out a, uh, you know, a picture lineup and I was easily recognizable. And somebody said, yeah, I saw that That guy. Yeah. That dude. And they showed up at my house and arrested me and I wouldn't get out for 32 months. I'd spent almost three years in in prison because of uh, felony controlled substance and – well, burglary – essentially. Right. So, but this is always the story that comes out in terms of I was a drug addict long before I ever took a drug because the substance was removed from me when you go away like this, but I didn't change. Right. I was the same guy. In fact, I was probably angrier, more judgmental, more fearful, more self-loathing 
so you know the substance wasn't the problem. Yeah, I I was the problem in every aspect of things. No matter what I in my life, I'm I was always the problem. So I always had to fix me first. I mean, listen, dude, this is a. I feel the same way. I think this is a radical lesson that I think a lot of sober people have learned, and people who go through big changes. I've found. I'm not saying anything is an absolute or or everybody has to do this, but this is definitely something I utterly relate to. The minute that I can honestly only look at myself as the point of responsibility for everything, that's when I'm winning. I'm here because of what I did, nobody else. Right. There's an accountability piece to that 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 really took me a while. Like 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 what was my part in it? Yeah. I can't control if this person said this, that, or the other to me. I can't control that. I can control how I act. And so there was an affirmation that my therapist had me use for a long time. You know, life isn't fair. It's how you deal with it that matters, period. Yeah. And that, you know, that's radical acceptance right there. That's yeah. what it is. Like no matter what's going on around me, especially during a pandemic year and what we've gone through in the last, you know, year, like I can't control any of this. Right. I can only control who I am during this process. And that's what really changed in terms of, of my health and, and fitness during this time was that, okay, get back to the grassroots here. Your recovery is life isn't fair. It's how you deal with it that matters. So let's deal with it in a healthy, positive way. Yeah. I think it's a tough, it's a tough sell too nowadays. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm not even necessarily trying to sell it because I think that if you, if you can't, if you're not existing from that place, it's hard to see that. If you're if you're existing in the place where you're not responsible for anything and the world is doing it to you. Then you feel that there's a victimization there that comes with that. It's hard to win. Yeah. You're not going to win. And so trying to have the world stop affecting you is just a cyclical battle. I found it to be. For the longest time, so did I. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a hard thing to convince somebody to change. It's literally just the way you're looking at it. Yep. That's all it is. It's your perspective switch. And I, I don't want somebody to have to go to prison to, right. or you know, be a drug addict or you know, be 300 pounds to have to flip that switch. You can do it like – if I tell you like when you wake up tomorrow morning, you can choose to be happy. You can. Yeah. And – they could look at me like, no, I need my coffee. I need like, you know, I, I don't need, you know, my, my significant other to, to piss me off in the morning. And I'm like, you, you have control over all that stuff. Yeah. And it's, it is, it's radical acceptance and it's, it's so simple, but we make things so complicated as human beings that it's taken a long time, but I live in that radical acceptance and, and, and world now. And it's, it's benefited me. doesn't mean I'm going to be successful or necessarily, you know, Great things are going to happen for me, but you know, I I feel like I have a semblance of control in a world that has taken so much control away from us. And I, and I think that the great things have already happened. You know what I mean? Because if you're happy, right? If you're doing well, you know, we can get into all the material shit. I've had more material wealth than I have today, and yep. I'm happier today. Me too. Yeah. And I know plenty of people that have far more material wealth than me. I wouldn't put up their happiness against mine. Well, I use this 
line, it's not a line, it's the truth. Like when I got out of prison and I started working for a sober living home, I got offered a job for 15 bucks an hour. And I remember telling this when I was giving a speech one time, I was like, I was making $5 million a year and was fucking miserable. Yeah. And I have just been offered a job for 15 bucks an hour and I felt more value than I'd ever felt in my life. So like the idea of what I thought success was, was going to get flipped on its ear. Yeah. And it was never going to be the same. I know I can live off nothing and be great. And I know I can live off a lot of money and be miserable. So there's a fine line. All, all money did for me was like expose my character defects. Yeah. That's what money really did. It, it, you know, it made me think I was better than I was. This is a big way to put it. Did it, did this change happen in jail, in prison? Well, yeah, I didn't know what was happening then. I mean, for 30, probably 28 months of the 32 I was in there, I did nothing. I went outside twice. I sat on my my ass and gained, I was probably 325 pounds, probably about to stroke out from high blood pressure because the, the salt intake in, those, in that food, the sodium levels in that food was just killing you. And uh, my roommate, you know, I talk about my higher power a lot, but like I told you, the, the sheriff's department showed up to save my life. Well, my roommate did. He was a, an Iraqi Afghan war vet. And he had done something I think a lot of us have done in our lives, and that's drive drunk one night. And unfortunately for his case, he uh, he killed somebody, and in the, in the, in the, he was on leave or on from tour in, in Iraq, I think. And uh, he had spent the last eight years there, and he just tried to better himself every single day. And I didn't understand it. I was like, "Look at us, we're in, you know we're losers, right? You know." And he just was not resolute with being that person, so. One day he must have felt comfortable enough to confront me, and he was like, you need to get your head out of the sand, Ryan. You don't understand the value that you have, not only for the men in here, but for when you get out, because you're going to get out at some point. I may never. And I just, you know, I had passed up parole like three or four times. I could have been out like in six months, and I just stayed because I was, cause I was depressed and I was miserable, and I, I didn't want to – I thought I was doing everybody a favor. Right. So he said, we're going to go down to the prison library and help prisoners who don't know how to read learn how to read. I said – I've had so many of these come to Jesus moments in my life, coaches, mentors, and I just, you know, flipped them the bird and said, I got this. So I can't tell you why I I went, maybe because the chemical was out of my brain long enough now. But I went begrudgingly. I still remember walking down the hallway in that red jumpsuit, like metaphorically kicking rocks like a petulant child, thinking, This is stupid, this isn't gonna help me. Like, doesn't he know how important I am? Yeah, The guy in, in prison still believes that about himself. Yeah. So I went in, and there were these men in a place where you're not supposed to show any vulnerability, like look at me and go, I can't read, Ryan. I need some help. Can you help me? And I don't think growing up in Montana, in the cowboy culture, and then in in football and pro football, that I've ever heard another man utter those words, I need help. Can you help me? And I started helping him with what they needed. Now, if I would have gone home and, you know, had one good day from it, I would have been like, yeah, that's a good story, but it wouldn't have been conditioned, right? I mean, I had to go back. And I realized a couple months later that I was actually being of service to another human being for the first time in my life. So that, I was more personable. I was more cheerful. I was interacting with my family. More months passed, and I was the TA for the substance abuse counselor, and then I parole came up, and I asked to get out. 
and I knew it was going to have to be at the foundation of who I was when I got out or nothing would change. So that was, that was it. The foundation was to be of service to others, and whatever trickles off that from that foundation that I build up is gravy. And that's what I've been doing since I got out just over six years ago. It's amazing. I was, yeah, I was, I mean, I didn't, I had no hope, man. I didn't have any money when I got out. I didn't have a place to live. You know, people weren't coming to offer me jobs. Or, I mean, there was, but I had this hope and it came from doing what I did in prison. But when you're in it, you don't realize that that was what it was doing. You know, you just, you were just doing it because it, it's the next right thing. Yeah. And uh, it's changed my life. And it's put me in a position now where I can help people essentially by helping myself. Yeah. I think that's a, a, a huge part of recovery from anything, passing it on, helping others. Yeah, I can't, what's, I can't keep it unless I give it away. Right. And that's so true. And it, it was weird to hear somebody say that for the first time. And I'm like, well, I get it now. Yeah. Like, because I, I, di- I didn't want to live a public life again. I wanted to disappear. I wanted to go work at McDonald's, just be a normal guy. I don't know about McDonald's, but I wanted to go... Where, you know, but I can't, you know, I got drafted alongside arguably the greatest quarterback to ever play right when the internet started. And I was, the expectations were so high and I crashed and burned so profusely that my name just doesn't go away. Yeah. So I'm either going to have to learn how to deal with it and reshape what I believe is, uh, is the narrative or I'm just going to have to battle with it all the time. Yeah. And so I chose I chose the latter and then went after it that way. I think it's a more interesting story, you know. Well, I for, mean. For me, yeah. it's a very interesting story, but it's also something I can learn from, something I can use, something that backs up my ideas about all of this. You know, I see people all the time who, from my point of view, don't have it tough. And I'm envious of the ease that they move through life and and i'm faced daily with having to make decisions and the decision requires a lot of effort not to mention the effort once i've made the decision to act in my best interest and so when people don't have that i do get a little bit like the world isn't fair yeah but it's not you know like I, I would love to just go like smash a Jimmy John sandwich when we're done here, <laughs> right. just because this is emotionally draining. Sure, and I that's comfort for me. Right, I'm just like oh, but it's a it's a matter of like you know, being a former athlete helps a ton when it comes to the you know when you diet and when you get into maintenance and everything like that. So. But yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I'm just like sometimes I just want to be comforted. But then if I do now, if I do, I gotta be okay with it in the morning and go. Okay, let's just let's get back up and yeah, get back on the bike. The fucking razor's edge, dude. Because I find guilt to be a valuable thing, but it also can ruin my life. Yes, like it's it's I am so black and white on these things and have to walk that narrow narrow line of like. I messed up, use guilt to get me straight. But if there's too much, I can't, you know, I'm just constantly trying to flip myself back and forth between the extremes. For me, I've come to the definition of shame and guilt. Like, I fully understand that shame is that I'm a bad person and guilt is that I did a bad thing and we're going to, yeah. and, and, and I've really had found acceptance in that, that I know I'm not a bad person. Right. You know, I may have done a bad thing. Yeah. And that's okay. 
I'm a flawed human being trying to be better every single day too. Yeah. So let's let's move from that place. And it's and it requires some certain amount of weight in that idea because if there's no weight to it, then who cares? I'll just continue to do bad things and it won't matter. Right. These are delicate things. I actually, you know, this is another thing that I look at people and I go like, that person can recognize they did something bad and they have no shot at ruining their life over this thing. Right. And there is a risk for me with that. Now, I I think time and repetition, you get better, you get more adept at dealing with this stuff. But there was a time where I went through that shame ending a process of going towards something right. Well, yeah. I mean, I just started a job with NFL Radio on Sirius XM, and my boss called and offered me the job, and, I, and my immediate mindset was shame. And I went, but I, do you really want to give me this job? I was this, I'm, I'm this incredible bust. What, people aren't going to take me seriously. Or, and he's like, Ryan, you were the second pick in the NFL draft. You played professional football longer than what the average career is. You, you got, and that's just my shame. Yeah. Like I almost jeopardized me getting a, a great new job because I thought of myself what a ton of people have just told me and beat me over the head with for so long that like, I can't have that. I can't have nice things because I'm not, I'm, I'm a bad person. But do you, ha- can you at all see that the work you've done in recovery is buying back points for yourself? It is, but I'm so bad at this. Like I'm in a room and somebody comes up to me and is like patting you on the back and saying, oh man, it's so awesome what you've done and everything. If you watch my body language, my head like goes to the floor and looks at my feet. But if somebody comes up to me and goes, you're Ryan Leaf, aren't you? You're a fucking asshole, man. I'm like, yeah, that's, that sounds about right. You know, I, I really am. Right. And I'm 44 going on 45 years old. And I'm. That's still a process for me. Process, not perfection. In that 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 process for me, it just really is. Now, to your point, it's getting better. Yeah. Because guess what? The people that are reaching out now are the the, the people that are in need, and that is that's incredibly fulfilling. Yeah. And I know it's the same for you because I've listened to your podcast and I've seen the comments and I've seen like the inspiration and hope you give people because of what you've been through. Yeah. That's. That's huge. Yeah, and and like I I would I would just hope my my only hope is that the door that has slammed that I thought had slammed shut for me on being sober, getting my weight in order, feeling good about myself, that's still every one of those things exist. Exist. Yep. None of them go away. However, the difference between how I deal with them and, and the process today and the amount of effort it required even a year ago or more, we just keep going past to the to the beginning and, and the the stress of it was much greater. So I can understand how it seems overwhelming. Any one of these things, anything in your life. You tie them all together and it's like. It, it, it seems insurmountable. It gets better. But. I think the – and by the way, maybe for somebody, it's like they go to rehab, they come back, and they're fixed. I know. Maybe that's the case for some people. I, I, I've had some friends that have done that, 
and I'm just like, 28 days and you got this. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Yeah, this is, again, my wife leaving half a glass of wine at the dinner table where I'm like, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Did you really need that? That's it? I did that so many times. I, I did 28 days time after time. The last time I was in rehab, I was there for like 24 hours and then walked out, which they can't. They tried to stop me. They but couldn't they stop me. Right. Walked through the woods to the, to the gas station, called a cab, took a cab like 100 miles, spent the weekend at a crack house, woke up and was like, what the fuck am I doing? I just got to rehab. I I called rehab and said, can you guys come pick me up? They said, no. By the way, all the money you spent here, you forfeited when you left. This is in the contract. I said, okay, I'll pay for another one. Come get me. They said, no, we don't really want you back. I had to go and work in their kitchen in order to pay for my next time through and it took months i wound up being there for six months 28 days i'm like if I you went, can get fixed in 28 days i'm so happy for listen, you but this is, cannot relate listen to this one i went to treatment when i got out of prison three years sober so i was three years clean when i went into treatment and i chose to stay there for 90 days and i remember when the guy or gal were walking out after the 28 days i, I always said to him this i said hey i just want to i just want to point this out to you real quick before you go. I know you're sitting on this pink cloud right now. I'm three years sober and I'm going to stay here another, another 60 days. Okay. Yeah. I'm just, just I'm going to leave that as it is and best of luck to you, you know? Yeah. And I was there for 90 days and guess what? Two or three of them were back within, you know, a couple weeks. I think the 28 day model just doesn't make sense to me. I'm, I'm sure it works for somebody. They but tell it, it, they tell you that it doesn't yet. They, yet they continue to market it. In that form, you know, but it's something to do with like insurance. Oh, of course, it has insurance money. will yeah. pay twenty eight days. Man, I'm so glad you're doing well. You too. Hey, it's just cool sitting across from you. Where remember the Titans is one of my favorite movies of all time. Of course, it's football, right? Yeah. It's Denzel, and your your character is so memorable, memorable. You know, so uh, this is pretty cool for me too. Yeah. Well, we probably filmed that. We did. That came out right as you were getting into your professional career. Yeah. Yeah. So you were, what were you, 20, 22 playing? 22. 17-year-old kid? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it came out right around the time of, uh, you know, where football was big. You know, football is, but I'll go back and watch that thing over and over and over again, man. It's a storyline, and I'm just like, it's so sad. And in a year, like, where the social injustices exist, that's like, I mean, how how more apropos is it than the end? You yeah. know, so yeah, I I I love that I did that, and this is me, uh, you know, dusting off the feather in my cap a little bit, but I can do that. American History X was the movie I did right before Remember the Titans, or 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 it was coming out when we started filming. Anyway, they were very close together, and to have those two, which are so. The juxtaposition. It's a great right? contrast, and it's also both have been super appropriate this year. Yeah, in this past year, I'm I'm very happy to have been a part of both of those. And then we got the sports angle too. Yeah. By the way, the fucking they tried to put us through a training camp. <laughs> it was a, I mean it was a disaster for me. <laughs> I would get through stretching and be like, 
I'm not doing anything else. That's I can't like do a, anything else. Yeah, guys. totally wiped out just after stretching. It's amazing. Don't you, when you watch the NFL now and you see the guys that are weighing 330, 340 pounds and their mobility and speed and stuff, you're like, how is that even possible? I don't get it. Because I, I, I got up to, like, what, when I, before I changed back in July, my nutrition and everything, I was 298 pounds. So I was, you know, close to 300. Now, I, I'm a big frame, so I could carry it a little differently, but my joints, my body just from carrying that stuff, yeah, uh, so much weight. Um, I do it now when I pick up my son. I'm like, this is like half of what was on me, and this feels like a ton that I'm carrying around when I'm carrying my 45-pound son around. Yeah. I will occasionally do a farmer carry with like a 225 on a, on a hex bar. Yep. Very occasionally, because I don't really fuck around with super heavy weights ever, and that's not even that heavy. Like you see guys much smaller than yep. me doing it with much more weight than that. That's not even as much as I weighed when I've got when I'm carrying 225. And the the it's shocking how hard it is to walk around. Right? Shocking. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's been uh, it's been uh, it's just been a, a mindset a, a mindset set shift and uh and just had to be um and and all the listeners out there one of the biggest helpers i drink 200 plus ounces of water every day now wow that's been a huge part of it just you know removing toxins and flushing your body that's i really say that's the reason why it was so so fast like i lost a lot of weight immediately when i just got on the on a on a lower calorie diet and just pounding water and now now i'm in maintenance and the water stays the same, the calories stay the same, but my, now my weight stays the same because my body's telling me now it's it's where it's supposed to be. What was your program to lose it? 2100 calories. You know, first it was a fat burn diet where you just you remove all the fat and carbs out of it. So it's just really high protein, a uh, couple things of fruit during the day, probably about 1000 calories for like 7 days just to shred you. Yeah. And then I went into keto essentially where it was 60% f- fat, 30% protein and 10% carbs, 2,100 calories a day, 200 plus ounces of water. Haven't seen a weight room during this whole process. Try to walk at least five miles a day, whether that is when I go play golf or when I'm at home, I'll get out and go for a hike or a walk that will, will add up to that. So I wear a little odometer on my wrist that says, you know, when you hit 10,000 steps, which is about five miles. Yeah, That's been it. When the weight dropped, I went and saw a doctor. We did a blood panel. We talked about what I was deficient in. I also wanted to see if I was allergic to some things that, that was causing inflammation in my body. And that was huge too. I was incredibly low in testosterone. Oh, wow. So we've added testosterone supplements to, and I've just, the energy I have again, you know, was really low in thyroid hormone. So we've added thyroid hormone to it too as well. And I always want to be low in thyroid. I'm so like, because that was one of the things that I always would go like, it's just my thyroid. Yeah, they're getting this test wrong. I've had this test like eight times, and they get it wrong every time. I know I just need a pill. Yeah, unfortunately, that wasn't the case with me. And then uh, multivitamin and some magnesium, calcium, and uh, ubiquinol, just some like supplement stuff to to boost my immune system, and and uh, and I just got a ton of energy again. Yeah, You know, I don't feel like I'm, you know, I have a three-year-old, so I got to have a ton of energy, but I don't, I don't, 
have the hankering to sit around in front of my computer or on the couch watching TV anymore. If I feel like one minute there's there's some antsiness to me, I, I just pop up and I go walk, you know? Yeah. I've been trying to go out and play golf in the mornings with some buddies. That's been really helpful during the pandemic because it's social, but it's socially distant. I don't know what I would have done without having the ability not to be isolated through this whole process. But that's about it, and I've stuck to it, and I intermittent fast at night. So, like, today my, my dinner will be at 4 o'clock today, and then I won't eat until 8 a.m. tomorrow morning. Right. That's But in between, you know, 8 a.m. this morning until 4, I've had four meals. I've had breakfast, lunch, a snack, and, and I'll have dinner, which is, I think, a pork chop and some vegetables tonight for dinner. Nice. And you're, t- you're also telling this whole story in very, very graphic details, right? Are well, we allowed to talk about that? Well, here at APM? Yeah. It's – yeah, what we just went through is a taste of what – we're going to launch here at APM, and it's. I don't want to step. I don't. Want, I want Kevin to like. Kevin's like so excited. We, yeah, we, I don't want to say anything. We're not allowed to say. Nara, do you? Well, have I don't think we can say it. We haven't. We haven't announced it yet. So we have not announced it. Let's just say that doesn't help. Here, well, we'll just put it this way. I was excited for 2021 because I was going to do whatever I wanted, and yeah. at the end of the year, let the chips fall as they may. So let's just say we have some neat projects coming in 2021 that I'm really proud of. And excited when we're gonna when we're gonna be able to announce it because I think they're gonna not only help a lot of people but uh, continue down the road of of what I need to for my for my mental health and well being. Yeah, Ryan Leaf, thank you so much. You bet. Thanks this for. It's been awesome. Yeah, this is a it's a great platform you have. I'm glad you're doing what you do. And anytime you need anything, brother. I really do think for guys like you and me that if we don't do some version of this. Even if it's going to a meeting and setting up chairs, that's a version of this. Yes. I, you know, if we don't do some version of that, it's hard, you know. I believe this is an opportunity to be of service. I really yeah. do. I really, really do. Um, because since the pandemic started, through my social media platforms, the direct messaging, I've probably gotten 10,000 messages from people either needed to hear something or needed a year to needed somebody to talk to. Yeah, and I've, and it, it seems overwhelming at at first, but then you realize what it's doing, and sometimes it's just a response back with a little heart. Yeah, and that just it lets them know that there's a solution and that there is hope because if you and I can do this, like anybody can, because we were we were as worse off as as anybody could imagine. So if we can do this, anybody can. Yeah, and. To this point about talking to people and and being in touch with them, I do firmly believe that I am responsible for everything. There's nothing that I can come into contact with that if I want it – if I want to experience it the way that is the most healthy for me that I perceive it as my respo- – like I – you know, that's yeah. it. That's how I have to exist. But it's – very important for me to have people in my life that I can communicate with this about. Yep. That That is part number two well, to the whole game. This isn't just a, like, if you're listening to this, it's, it's just in, like I just started eating differently or I started thinking differently. Like, I see a therapist on a weekly basis, right? Uh, uh, we see co-parenting uh, counselor, so my my kid's mom and I can co-parent well. You know, I go to meetings, I pray, I meditate, 
I exercise. I mean, all of these things are a part of uh, of it. It's just not like, you know, I just started eating differently. Right. And yeah, exactly. And I don't want it to seem like – because I do believe that all of that, all of what you're talking about for me has required just a different – just a shift in my point of view to be able to even do that, to yep. be able to take that on. I do think step one is a shift in point of view for me. Yep. That said – it is then a lot of work. It's a lot of things. It's a lot of, you know, having somebody to talk to, to download what you're going through, to upload from them and be of service to them and help them. All of that, those are all components. So when I talk about my responsibility, the idea that I am believe myself to be alone on an island doing this all, that's not it no. at all. It's a network of systems that, operate in a way that's cohesive well what people have tried to tell me is like ryan do you do you understand how many people are here because of you now and i'm like <laughs> i said you have no idea how many people have gotten me here that's right. the bigger answer in all this like like it, it is not a, an island and everything and i i can't tell you know, you guys out there, you felt overweight. And you're working towards other thing, and you and talking to girls and stuff like that. That's been the biggest. Like, I found being vulnerable and transparent with women is maybe the most like sexy thing that they want. <laughs> you know, and that's that was like a like I just thought they wanted machismo and like success and money and power and all this stuff. And it's just like, hey, we're human beings. We're getting old. I just want somebody to be truthful with me and yeah. be honest. That's pretty cool to know when when you're kind of when you're starting to live that lifestyle that that's that's a cool spot you're you're moving towards. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome, Ryan. Thank you. You bet. Thank you for having me, Ethan. And now for the Q and A. This is a question for you from Albert. Hi, Albert. Ethan, your podcast has helped me on my eighty pound weight loss goal. My question for you is. I've been doing a caloric deficit for almost a year, and my body has gotten used to the caloric intake, so I'm at a plateau. Should I decrease my caloric intake even more or incorporate more workouts or both? Great question, Albert. I would actually take a break from dieting. If you've been dieting in a caloric deficit for a year, I would just take a break and try to – and tr you know, I understand the, the idea with the plateau is you're not losing weight. You got to do something to – to start losing weight again, I think you could probably increase your calories a little bit and take a nice break and let your body chill out. And then when you go back into a deficit, it it should give up that weight more easily. This is one of the benefits of the maintenance period, which I think is the most sane, most rational, most helpful thing in dieting. If I was ever going to write a diet book, I wouldn't write a diet book. I would write a book about maintenance. That's all. I think that's the entire game. Y you know, we think about this word lifestyle change. A diet's not a lifestyle change. A diet is a temporary thing. A diet is a specific window of time where we're trying to accomplish one thing. It has nothing to do with the way we live our life at all. Lifestyle change is what we learn in the maintenance period. So if you've dieted for a year in a caloric deficit and you're at a plateau, the other reason why I don't suggest bumping up your cardio is the minute you stop doing that, you're going to have to factor that into whatever you're eating. If I, So many times I would start some program 
you know, and go like, I'm going to get my shit together. I'm going to do, you know, Barry's boot camp and eat in this way. Um, and I fucking hate Barry's boot camp. So I've been swearing a lot. I apologize. I hate Barry's boot camp, but I'll just do it for a month and I'll get to my goal. Well, guess what? If I just do that for a month and get to my goal, what happens when I stop doing it? I'm going to gain weight unless I factor in, well, now this, you know, 500 calories or whatever, you, you, no, I think five, maybe I burned 500 calories at a Barry's boot camp. This 500 calories a day, that's a pound a week in weight gain if I don't do it. So I think that adding exercise is really great. Add exercise that you can make a part of your life. I go to the gym almost every day, six days a week. I'm going to do that hopefully forever. I actually enjoy doing it. There's no part of it that I don't enjoy. So that, and I go for one hour. That I can figure out an hour. If I have to work a 14 hour day, I go before, I go after. Or sometimes I miss a day. And if I miss a day, it's not the end of the world. Because guess what? An hour of lifting weights does not actually add all that many calories to my day. I'm not burning that many extra calories. Sure, I'm burning some, but it's not going to make such a huge difference. If you start really trying to turn up the calorie burning by doing exercise, the minute you stop, you got to change your food around or you're going to gain weight. So my suggestion is do a maintenance period, really get that locked in, let your body, uh, the, the fatigue from dieting, get out of your system, then hit it again. And I'm sure you'll, you'll lose it. That's, that's what I suggest doing. Thank you for your question. If you have a question you would like me to uh, answer on this program, please submit it to americanglutton.net. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee, and as always, joined by my chaperone, Paige Dorian. Follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.